All right, so we're going to jump in again together to our Revelation study, our Revelation message series, What Revelation Reveals. We're in week five of this series, and we have been focusing specifically on the letters to the churches from the Lord Jesus Himself. Uh, Imagine just getting a a letter from Christ and me getting up here uh, like I illustrated when we started in on the churches, uh, actually reading a letter that had been passed down from the, the head of our church, the Lord Jesus Himself. Wow. And that's what's been happening with each of these churches. They've gotten a specific a direct and a personal letter from the Lord Jesus. And so we've been looking at that, we've been studying that in detail, just digging into that together. And today, uh, as we continue, we're going to talk about the church in Pergamum, and specifically the letter from the Lord Jesus to the church in Pergamum. And we'll be in Revelation chapter 2. Verses 12 through 17, that's our our text today that we're going to look at together. So I invite you to go ahead and and get into that with me so you can follow along as we go forward, Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And what we're going to see as we look at this letter, what could really sum up this church uh, is unfortunately something negative, and the summary would be a compromised or a compromising church. A compromised or a compromising church. So Revelation 2, 12-17, beginning in verse 12, the Lord Jesus saying to His servant, the Apostle John, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, that's the messenger, the teacher, the pastor of that church, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged Sword, which is a reference to the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12-13 tells us uh, in powerful detail how effective and how powerful the Word of God is. Both the written Word, which points to the living and eternal Word, both are powerful, both are authoritative, both are unparalleled. So this is a reference specifically to the double-edged sword of the written Word of God, the entire revelation of God through His Word, which the eternal living Word, the Son, Jesus, possesses and has and controls and has all authority over. Verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. And that's literally, the literal meaning of witness is martyr. Martyr and witness are interchangeable in the Greek. And so he, this was a, a martyr that gave his life for the testimony of Jesus. And church history actually points to him as being possibly uh, one of the pastors of the church here who underwent persecution up to the point of death. There's not a lot known, though, about him, and and so some of that is going to be speculation. But what Jesus does want to make clear is that this Antipas was faithful in his witness, faithful in his example, faithful in his being loyal to the Lord Jesus, to the gospel, even to the point of death, because he was, in fact, put to death among you, Jesus says here in this verse, where Satan lives. So that's the second time Jesus has said that. That's something 
kind of peculiar, right? That stands out. Where Satan's throne is, where Satan lives, sounds like a pretty bad place to be. So what is all that about? Well, when Jesus says that he knows where the the Christians in this city live, that they live where Satan's throne is, uh, it's probably a reference to the temple uh, and altar of Zeus that resided in this city, in Pergamum. There was this huge temple to Zeus. And in this temple there was the altar of Zeus, which wasn't just an altar, it was very much like a big throne. And sacrifices were made on that, and worshipers came before it. And in fact, this temple, this structure, was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. And so it was, it was famous, it was infamous, and Zeus, in the pantheon of Greek gods and Roman gods, he was Jupiter in the Roman, uh, in the Roman context, but he was the, the chief among the pantheon of gods. All the gods they had, he stood at the top, and he was the most powerful, the most prominent. And so, very likely, it's a reference to kind of his place in their pagan false hierarchy. The other thing that this probably references is that in Pergamum, there was also a temple of the snake god, Asclepius. And this snake god was believed to provide healing. He was believed to uh, provide uh, illumination in in things of science and that, that kind of thing. And so he was revered. He was held up. And in his temple, there were literal snakes everywhere. You might want to just do a little shiver right now, you know. I just I think of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know. He hates snakes, and many people hate snakes, wisely so. But in this temple, there were literal snakes just everywhere, crawling around everywhere. And they weren't venomous snakes, but they were still snakes. And people would actually come in and lay down and sleep on the floor with the snakes, hoping that the snakes would slither over them, and if they did, they believed they would grant them healing and grant them understanding. Yuck, right? Not a very good place to be. And so, um, I, I particularly like that possible interpretation of where Satan's throne is and where Satan lives, referencing uh, the, the fact that Satan throughout Scripture is connected to the serpent. Right? Think back all the way to the beginning, the Garden of Eden, when Satan deceived Adam and Eve by, in taking the form of a ser- serpent. And so the serpent obviously has come to be connected to deception and, and the fallenness of man and sin and, and kind of speaks to the character of the enemy, of Satan. So uh, really both work, both apply here. And even though we don't know all the details about what Jesus really meant, and maybe we can't fully uh, get the, the interpretation there, what we know is there was very, very real evil and a very dominant presence of the work of the enemy at work in this place in just about every aspect of the culture of this city and the people in it, in Pergamum. And obviously there was, there was great persecution here, just like in many of the other prominent cities throughout the empire, persecution uh, at the hands of the empire 
and the hands of local officials against those who belonged to the church and who stood strong in their testimony of faith and in preserving the gospel. So in that environment, remember before, um, those of you who were here or maybe you weren't, you listened to the previous messages, uh, remember I talked about the grace sandwich when we, we talked about Ephesus, that uh, Jesus doesn't just come right in, launching right into all that's wrong and all that's negative and, and all that he's displeased with. Um, he, he gives a, a frequent pattern where he recognizes the good and what is to be commended before he unloads the problem. That grace sandwich. Good, here's the problem, and then coming back around with some encouragement again. He does the same thing here. So, because in the midst of this, this very concentrated evil, this obvious display of the enemy's power and work among the people of the city of Pergamum, Jesus commends them. He says, even though you are living in this horrible circumstance, in this terrible environment, even though you are under intense supernatural pressure, uh, you, are, you are definitely in the middle of spiritual warfare here. I know that. I see that. I recognize that. And even though you're up against all that, you're holding on to my name. You're holding on to my name. You, you haven't denied your faith in me. Even though, and especially profound if this was indeed one of their pastors, even though Antipas was actually put to death among you. Even that didn't shake you. So, I mean, Jesus is is congratulating them and recognizing them on their strength and, and on the fact that they are holding on to their faith in Him. Incidentally, we don't know this for sure, but church history, church legend, says that this Antipas was actually burned alive in a superheated bronze bull. That's how he died according to church history and church legend. Um, not a good way to go if that's how it happened. Um, and so Jesus is saying, these are good things. Your commitment is, is still there. It's recognizable. I see it. I recognize it. I receive your, your faith and your stand, and I appreciate it. I, I'm thankful for it. So there's the good. Verse 14, but, but, we have to talk. There's some things we've got to talk about, Jesus is saying here. But I have a few things against you. And remember, just like we've talked about before up to this point, Jesus isn't saying these things just out of, out of some sense of uh, disgust or just pure anger. This is, he's saying these hard things, these necessary things, and, and he is saying these things that are containing judgment, but it's all out of love. It's all out of love for this church. It's out of love for those whom He loves and, and that He knows loves Him. It's speaking hard truth that is necessary to hear to correct dangerous patterns and behavior. It's meant to cause repentance from sin. It's meant to preserve His body. We've got to keep that in mind. But I have a few things against you, he says. You have some there in your midst as part of your church. You have some there who hold to the teaching 
of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. And here's what that stumbling block looked like. To eat meat sacrificed to idols, which was a big no-no, and to commit sexual immorality. Now this is a reference way back to the Old Testament, Balaam's story, uh, and his story and his sin, which is referenced here, is found in Numbers 22 through 24 and also in chapter 31. Uh, it gives great detail to this um, really, really messed up prophet, quote, quote, of God, uh, who, who couldn't go against the Lord's word that he gave him, uh, couldn't pronounce a curse on Israel, which Balak wanted, but he found another way around it, and he he uh, encouraged and showed Balak how to cause Israel to stum- stumble another way by compromising and choosing uh, sinful actions. And so bad, bad uh, part in, in Israel's history. And so Jesus references this and he says, you have some who are doing the very same thing that Balaam did. You have some in your church that are following his example And they are willfully, knowingly causing you and others in your church to stumble and to sin. So they're just like Balaam. They're just as guilty as he was. They're causing a stumbling block to come into the church. And specifically, it's a stumbling block of idolatry and immorality. Just like what happened with Israel centuries before. And he continues, verse 15, In the same way. So just like that, here's another thing, another problem. You also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And it seems likely that this group of false teachers, this was obviously a specific group, and it seems that they probably employed abusing and manipulating Christian liberty. Christian liberty is a fact. It's a reality. We, it's something that we have. We have freedom, freedom in the Lord. And unfortunately, that's something that easily gets abused, either by ourselves directly or by the influence of others um, outside of us, manipulating and perverting and twisting the Christian liberty that we have. And so probably this is what was going on uh, because it, it seems likely that the Nicolaitans taught and believed wrongly that Christians could follow their own physical urges and their own sinful sensuality because physical purity, physical purity to them didn't matter as much or possibly at, as, at all uh, as spiritual purity did. Uh, they promoted that physical purity just wasn't that big of a priority. It wasn't that big of a deal because your soul, your spirit, remained pure no matter what you did in the body. That was the teaching that they uh, apparently promoted and, and caused others to fall into even though the two go together. For, for the spiritual pure person to be truly spiritually pure, they're going to be mindful of and on guard about the physical. And if you're constantly pursuing impurity and immorality physically, externally, 
then that's a big clue you're not spiritually pure. Right? Would you, wouldn't you agree with that? The two go together. The two go together. But they taught contrary to that. They taught the, the opposite of that. And they went further, and they taught that uh, the reason that you could hold to that erroneous, dangerous philosophy is because God's grace in Christ would cover any actions that could be considered sinful. So, they believe, just go out. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you want. It just doesn't matter. It's all external. It's all surface. So it really doesn't matter that much because your spiritual self is always going to be pure. And even if it weren't, guess what? God's grace in Christ is going to cover it. So you're good. But, but, that's a serious problem and a serious contradiction to what the rest of God's Word has to say about any such thing. For example, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, what should we say then? Should we continue, excuse me, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? That's what the Nicolaitans held to. That's what they promoted. It's what they taught. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Or you could look at it like this. Because grace always abounds, should we just go out and have license to sin and do whatever we want? The Apostle Paul answered, absolutely not. Or some of your translations that you have with you say, God forbid. May it never be. How can we who died to sin, which is true of every person that comes to Christ, Romans 6 talks about that. If you come to Christ, you and your old self and living for yourself, that died. That went away. You are identified with the death that Christ died for you. So the old you died in connection with Christ dying for you. And as Christ rose from the dead for you, so you, believer, were raised to new life in Him and for Him. So you don't live for yourself anymore. And that's actually what the freedom of the Gospel provides. We aren't free in Christ to just now live however we want, knowing that grace is just going to cover us. No, we're freed from the chains of sin so that we can now live for Jesus. We, we have the freedom to live for God and the way God calls us to. That's the freedom of the believer. So how can we who died to sin still live in it? So this is what was going on in the midst of this Pergamum church. They were holding on to their faith in Christ. They were holding strong no matter what persecution came their way, and that was to be applauded, sure. But within the church, as even while they were holding on to their relationship with Christ and their, their testimony as the church, there was this going on, this corruption, this poison, just seeping in and through this local church. This flirting with worldliness. This compromise with sin with specifically idolatry and immorality 
and false teaching and false doctrine. And it was just permeating Pergamum. And so the big problem for this church and the big problem for any church that follows their example of compromise is this. That silence is often the same as approval. Silence is often the same as approval. And that is not always the case. Let me just be clear. That's not always the case. But when it comes to obvious false teaching or false doctrine and sin, then it will always be the case with that. Anytime we compromise the purity of doctrine, the purity of, of biblical teaching, anytime we compromise and fail to call sin, sin, and call out sin when we see it in our body or, or in, in individual believers, anytime that happens, compromise is the same as compliance. And it's all complacency. We've got to guard against that. All of us. Not just the, the church to, at, at Pergamum that was being directly rebuked for this. It's applicable and relevant for every single one of us. Based on what Jesus said in the text here and in this letter, it seems apparent that most in the Pergamum church didn't directly go along with these dangerous heresies and actions. It, it doesn't mean that all of them just... just completely went along with it and believed it to be true. That's not what we can infer from this. But it is also apparent that the majority of the church simply remained silent and tolerant of these factions and these false teachers rather than applying church discipline and removing the corruption like the church is supposed to do. That's, I mean, as hard and uncomfortable and unpleasant as that is, that church is the church's mandate. When there is known sin, known falsehood, known corruption, present and exposed in the church body, and it's confronted, as it should be, by the church leadership and by individual believers, and the people that are guilty of that falsehood, that sin, that corruption don't turn from it, they don't repent from it, then the church has a solemn duty to discipline that one or the group. And if there's unrepentance, then that discipline includes and involves casting them out of the body. As Jesus talked about removing the leaven from the lump so that the whole lump is not tainted. It's it's something that we have to be committed to. And church, let's just be real together. That is becoming increasingly unpopular. Wouldn't you agree? Where where churches um, all, all around us, in alarming increasing measure, are unwilling to, first of all, to address sin at all. And if it is addressed, and if it comes to light, because of addressing it, that there is active participation in, in sin or there's, there's false teaching being communicated from up here 
week in and week out. And instead of exposing it for what it is, it's tolerated, it's allowed, and it's participated in. And as long as that happens, no matter how good things look on the outside, there is one who will always know and always see and who will at some point call it out in rebuke and possibly in outright judgment. We need to be separate. We need to be separate from such things. And that failure on the part of the church at Pergamum, that failure to carry out their responsibility made them responsible, even the faithful ones. It made them responsible for the continuing corruption. They were culpable in the continuing corruption. Even if they didn't actively participate in it. But because of their silence, it was the same as condoning. And the same as going along with it. And here's what that, what that shows us and what it communicates and what it teaches and what it challenges us to keep in mind. It's this. Compromise with sin in any form. Compromise with sin is a cancer in the church. Compromise with sin, which includes false teaching, false doctrine, and, I mean, just fill in the blank. Any, you name it. Sin. Active, unrepentant sin. Compromise with sin is a cancer in the church. It was then, and it always will be. And we don't have to look very far to see example after example after example of that right now in real time all around us. There are churches all through the country, all through the world, and yes, all through our little community that are packed right now, this morning, in churches that have a lot of appealing factors. They, they are, you know, they're edgy, and they're flashy, and they're trendy, and they're comfortable. And they just provide the warm fuzzies. But guess what? Underneath all that fluff, they're full of cancer. The cancer of unaddressed, undealt with sin. The cancer of compromised theology. The cancer of false doctrine and false teaching that's held up as pure doctrine and necessary teaching. We don't have to look very far. And no matter what the trend is all around us, no matter what happens uh, you know, in, in even every church around us, if every other local church falls prey to this kind of thing we're talking about, then Faith Baptist, may it never be true here. May it never be true of us. May we never be a compromising church. Why? Because that's not ever what Jesus calls us to. It's not what the Word of God ever holds up and permits. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age. That encompasses everything about the world system. That encompasses everything that is uh, under the influence of the enemy. 
Do not be conformed to this age, even if it creeps into the church. Let's just insert that. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That happens by God's Word. Happens by His timeless, always relevant Word. And let me just pause just for another side note here. Another little nugget. God's Word and the Gospel is always relevant. And even though we can constantly look for ways of uh, presenting it in, in more relevant ways as culture continues to change, there's not, nothing wrong with that in terms of our approach in explaining and pointing people to the Word and to the Gospel. I mean, that's fine. But the Word itself and the Gospel, everybody listen, the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ doesn't need our help in making it relevant. It is always relevant in every time, every age. We've got to keep that in mind and, and not blur the lines there. Okay? So, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which happens always by God's Word, so that you may discern what is the good pleasing, and perfect will of God. In old church, we need a discerning mind. Now more than ever, we need a discerning mind. And we will be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God as we are in the Word of God, as we hold up the Word of God, as we are anchored to it, no matter what, by God's Word, through personal reading and study, and by accurate, Spirit-led preaching and teaching. That's how it happens. And that's, that's the only way it happens. That's it. That's how we discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And that's how we're renewed in our mind and transformed. And so, the, the reason this is such a big deal, the reason this is so important, the reason Jesus so pointedly calls out this church whom He loves, who is getting a lot of things right. The reason He focuses in on this is because, and it has to be this way, when a church holds on to false doctrine, Jesus will hold it against them. And this is going to be true of any church, no matter where they are or when they are, no matter how big they are or how small they are, no matter how much they've got going on or how little they've got going on, when a church, when any church holds on to false doctrine, Jesus is going to hold it against them. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Because no one learns what true Christianity is by listening to false teaching. That's never going to happen. No one will ever be able to go through their Christian life knowing more about Christ, knowing Him better, knowing Him deeper, knowing what it means to be a true follower of Christ by listening to and by tolerating false doctrine and false teaching about Him. It's never going to happen. It will always be a case of someone being deceived rather than being illuminated. 
So this is a big problem. This is a big problem. And zeroing in, just kind of refreshing the specific issues that were at play here, um, the, the idolatry and the immorality that was going on and being just promoted, really. Uh, verses 14 and 15 told us that. The teaching of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam, the the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It was all about idolatry and immorality. And listen, church, Jesus will always be intolerant of immorality. And along with that idolatry, He will always be intolerant of that. Always. And so we have to be as well. No matter how hard it is to be constantly intolerant of immorality. No matter how much society comes at us and tells us, oh no, you just, hey, it's the 21st century. Or it's the 22nd century if the Lord tarries. However, however long we go in this world, it's going to be increasingly hard and harder for the church to remain intolerant as they should be of immorality and idolatry and every sin. But it doesn't matter the pressure that comes from outside or even from within. Jesus will always be intolerant of immorality or idolatry. And so we, the church of Jesus, we have to be as well. We have to be as well. Always. No matter how exhausting it might be, we've got to remain intolerant as he is of these kinds of actions that does not mean that we we treat the immoral or the idolater with hate or or um just outright hostility no we still we still treat them with dignity as people who are made in the image of god we still show them the love of christ but we love them enough to call their sin what it is sin and a cancer in their soul. That's what we've got to do. So, back in the text, with all that being said, as Jesus pronounces this problem, and He rebukes them, and He calls out this compromise, He says this in verse 16. So, repent! <laughs> that's, that's the solution here. I, I've, I've exposed the issue, I've exposed the problem, I've called out your sin, church, at Pergamum, Here's what the result has to be. Here's the solution. It's very simple. Repent. Turn around. Stop going down this road and and turn and go back to the way that that you know you're supposed to go. Go back on the path that I've called you to walk on. Repent. Metanoia. Have a complete change of mind. Look at everything differently. And choose and act differently. Repent. Otherwise, otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them, those that are holding to this doctrine, those that are holding on to this compromise, those that are doing this false teaching. I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, which once again is the Word of God. And the Word of God is always an impartial and perfect judge. And it's always the source of absolute Truth and absolute authority. Always. For every believer, every church, every age. But I want to focus in on, on Jesus' call to repent. Why is that so essential? It's, it's so essential because repentance, repentance is the cure for the cancer of compromise. 
Repentance is the cure for the cancer of compromise. It's the only cure. Just like it's the only cure for any sin, repentance is the remedy, the cure. Verse 17, Jesus says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Christian, you have been given ears to hear. We've all been given ears to hear. If you're in Christ, you've been given supernaturally. You've been given ears to hear what the Spirit would say to you. And we all need to listen because we all can go the way of Balaam. We all can can succumb to the subtle teaching and sin of the kind of teaching of the Nicolaitans. We can all introduce falsehood easily and quickly. We can all become so corrupt. It doesn't take long at all. And it's so, so subtle. So we've got to be on guard. We've got to listen and heed the warning that, that we hear in this church as we're talking about it today and all the other churches that we've, we've been talking about and will talk about. I mean, this is one of the most practical sections in all of Scripture. And we all need to apply it. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's an interesting phrase, right? The hidden manna probably here is meant to represent Jesus, the real, ultimate bread of life uh, that provides perfect and eternal provision for those who put their faith in Him. Uh, John 6, he talks about that He is the, the true bread of heaven that comes down, the bread of life given by the Father. And we also know that Jesus is the source of all spiritual blessings for every Christian. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that, that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. So either one fits that and, and probably is an allusion to Jesus Himself. And he, he continues, he says, I will also give Him a white stone. Bing! Light bulb, right? Everybody hold up your white stone and then dust off your hands afterwards. Everybody hold up your white stone if you got one. Okay. All right. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. In the culture of the day when this was written, winners in athletic contests were awarded with a white stone. And it was inscribed with the athlete's name. And this not only honored them, it did, it honored them, but it also gave them unique entrance into a special awards banquet held in the honor of the victors. And so along similar lines, Jesus here is promising special recognition to the faithful overcomers of the kind of compromise and false teaching and idolatry and immorality mentioned in this letter to this church. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that just spectacular? Which, incidentally, by the way, that's going to define all true believers. That is going to define all true believers. That, that all true believers will faithfully overcome compromise, false teaching, idolatry, and immorality in any form every time. 
that's going to mark, I would say it must mark every true believer. So, if you belong to Jesus today, if you're here and you know without a doubt you are in Christ, you belong to Him, then I hope you'll take this stone home with you. And on, on one side, I want you to write your name. I want you to write your name. And in writing your name, you're going to know that Jesus knows your name. That you are in Him. That you're in Him and that who you are, your identity, all that you are, is defined by what Jesus has done for you. It's, it's defined by what He's made you and who you are in Him. That's what I want your, your writing of your name on one side of that stone to represent for you, to remind you of that you're in Christ, that He knows your name, and that He's given you a whole new identity and a new reality. No matter what has happened to you in the past, you are new in Him. And live for Him in response. Live for Him in response to all that He's made true of you in that new reality. But, here's the other thing. I want you to also look at the blank side of the stone. Don't write anything on the other side. And remember, church, Christian, that one day, He's going to make you new yet again. He's going to make you new yet again. He's already made you new positionally And one day, He's going to make you brand new for eternity. And you'll get a brand new name again. That in that moment, somehow, uh, you'll know as He gives it to you. You'll know that's right. You'll know that, yeah, that's my name. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. It's coming. Keep looking for it. And in the meantime, keep living for the One who's already made you new. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is always relevant, always timely, always what we need. May we be faithful to it. May we be anchored to it. And as we are faithful and anchored to Your Word, may we be faithful and anchored to You. Guard us by the power of Your Spirit, I pray, against any compromise. Let us stand strong against compromising with sin at any level, knowing that even what we might in our human Uh, way of looking at things, what, what we might deem, quote, small sin is still incredibly powerful and subtle, and really there's no such thing as a small sin. May we be on guard against the cancer of sin. May we be on guard against the cancer of compromise. May we recognize it in our own lives and reject it and repent of it. And may we lovingly, faithfully recognize it in one another all for the glory and honor of our Savior who gave Himself for us, and it's in His great name I pray. Amen.